this episode of Shaping the Future, I'm speaking with French philosopher Marc Alizart about his new book, The Climate Coup. The Climate Coup makes for fascinating reading as Marc identifies the forces of financial and self-interest who are either actively profiting or seeking to gain power from the misery and suffering that is a result of regional and global ecological and climate disasters. In identifying these carbo-fascists, Marx suggests that there are parallels between events such as the Nazi burning of the Reichstag in 1933 and President Bolsonaro's more recent willful burning of the Amazon rainforest that has shocked the world. Linking this seeming madness to the rise of populism, Marx suggests key responses that those of us interested in saving the global commons must consider if we are to win the struggle for a stable future. The book is only 60 pages and available to buy online at the usual places. I would welcome any thoughts or feedback about The Climate Coup, so please do comment or get in touch with your thoughts. Following this episode, I'm going to post an interview I recorded at COP25 in Madrid with retired General Ghazi from Pakistan. General Ghazi was also formerly the Pakistani Defence Minister and explains how current trends of climate disruption, increasing pressures on water supply, are a key indicator of future conflict in the region. Conflict risk and human suffering are only going to increase as the world becomes hotter and resources more restricted. How we behave in the face of such pressures will be the true test of our humanity. Thanks for listening to Shaping the Future. Please subscribe on any of the podcast channels or YouTube. Or, if you can, support my work via Patreon. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed your book, Climate Coup, which is actually a lecture. In the Climate Coup, you identify a group of people who are essentially beneficiaries of the climate crisis. The irony from my perspective being that there can be no beneficiaries. Who are these people and how do they plan to benefit? A mixed group of people who actually don't necessarily know each other but have different points of view on the situation a number of people already benefiting from the climate crisis as we speak i mean uh, water has been privatized in australia for instance and the fantastic documentary on these traders in water where, where one of them basically said that well drafts were welcome because they pushed the, the price of water up a very famous British politician, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has his sister wrote an article which title is How to Benefit from the Water Crisis. It's not a taboo in economical circles that there is money to be made where people are suffering. And you could even go further to say that places like Syria, where turmoils have been largely driven by climate problems and food shortages, have benefited to people who sell weapons and to people who are interested in oil and the geopolitical shifts that climate crisis are producing are already on the radar of lots okay. of people. So in a very, very narrow way, these are the first groups of guys who are looking at the crisis with a very different way. Would you say then that as this sort of coup advances, if you like, that the opportunity for profit comes out of a sort of tightening, restrictive management of what is available? Well, definitely. Obviously, no one benefits from a total shutdown, a crisis apocalypse, because then there's no earth and there's no life and there's no money. But that's not what we're experiencing right now. Uh, we're going through a lot of, as you were saying, shortages. 
uh, chaos. And as Naomi Klein showed a few years ago, disaster capitalism is very well equipped to, to handle these situations, like in New Orleans, the Katrina event. The climate crisis is basically Katrina's happening on a yearly basis now in different countries all over the world. So um, that's obviously one of the ways we can benefit from the climate crisis. And then there are others which are more directly political. A full-blown climate crisis, which has not happened yet, and which would bring with it millions of refugees fleeing countries and would obviously create situations which would call for political regimes that are already trying to get hold of power but can't quite manage to handle it. And you can read that. You can read that in the literature of, of right-wing extremists all over the world. Some people are actually waiting for these refugee crises to happen because, because they know it will trigger the need to upheave democracy and to create military regimes. There's a term that you use, which I particularly, you know, I wouldn't say I like it, but I think it's, it's particularly apt, and it's carbo-fascists. Carbo-fascism, which you define as when capitalism metamorphoses into fascism and as such a tangible enemy of those of us trying to avert ecological catastrophe. What are carbo-fascists? How dangerous do you see the threat of what they represent? Carbo-fascism is, I didn't coin the word, it was um, a French sociologist who invented it a few years ago when he saw Bolsonaro and uh, Trump and uh, Orban rising to power with the same pattern of alliances with defense of fossil economy and financed uh, political parties by fossil companies. And he was saying, isn't it weird that all these people have the same kind of platform, which is uh, strong men in power? And um, and this kind of idea that burning fascist fuel is great. I think carbon fascism is the definition would be use climate change to make a right wing agenda progress. As I was saying, either by creating the conditions of a general chaos that would benefit a military regimes. When we're talking about carbon fascists in what you've just described, even in America, it hasn't gone away with the end of Trump. It very much seems to be gaining its own momentum in the wings. And a sort of loose parallel is populism, which we see very much right. in the UK right now, and in Hungary or Poland and any other, with well, quite a lot of other examples. Right. I mean, are we really seeing now that we are entering a period where these struggles that you're outlining in this book are going to become very tangible. Absolutely. And the, yes, we're not out of the woods at all. Even with Biden's victory or the victory of the Greens in Germany, we can be hopeful of. The reason why is, is carbon fascism is actually larger than the interest group I just talked about. It uh, appeals to another factor which I haven't talked about yet, which is nihilism, which is the, 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 the idea, the sentiment that the situation, the political, the social situation of so many people is so dire that they don't feel that the breakup of the world, would that they would lose more in a climate catastrophe than they already have. And actually, they would even benefit from the fact that it's a, it's a great equalizer and that uh, people they feel are, are despising them or, or have earned more wealth than them in despicable ways would be leveled by a great catastrophe. I was stunned by a survey that was done by an opinion poll 
And the questions were basically something like, do you think society should be burned down to the ground in order to be rebuilt or something like that? And the, the answer was 45% people said yes, that the only way to rebuild society is to burn it to the ground. And I think carbo-fascism is also an appeal to these people. It's a way of saying, you know, your life is shit, but we have means of making life of everybody shit. <laughs> so vote yeah. for us. And with obviously something else behind it, which is not all, always said in the same clarity, which is obviously people who are going to suffer from climate change are not you, not directly not really, because if you're white and you live in mainland uh, America or Russia or Hungary or whatever, you're not going to suffer like people in India, Bangladesh or, or, or sub-Saharan Africa. So there's also this racist backdrop to carbo-fascism and nihilistic politics that has to be understood in order to have the full, the full scope of the problem. In the book, you do link... Uh, nihilism to consumerism as well yes uh, can you talk a little bit about that well the thing is a, a psychiatrist wrote a very nice paper on well a scary paper on climate breakdown from his point of view as a way of saying well if the world is going to end then this is the time to enjoy ourselves <laughs> uh, this is the carpet yem philosophy you know and it's true that, that it's present in the death drive the death drive is linked to 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 the idea that you know you should consume in in both senses of the word of the burn and enjoy your life since it's finished so i think yes there is also a weird and perverse alliance between yeah. consumerism and, and, and carbon fascism and of the 45 percent of people who are going to burn it to the ground there's still a good number of people who are very much up for saving <laughs> what's what they can, what we can. And, you know, one issue is that we we protest, we make signs, we call for change. And as these recent global summits of world leaders demonstrate, change is creeping along. I mean, you don't feel too inspired when you get to the end of something like the G7. How do we move towards real action because your, your book is actually, you know, it moves into a sort of action phase, if you like. So what are the building blocks of turning the ecological dial in our favour? Well, I guess that's the most difficult part, obviously. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, lots of people are thinking about it. And, and well, but what, what I wanted to say in the, in the very little book I wrote is, I think one of the main things the environmentalists have to have in mind is precisely what we're talking about, that there is no evident consensus on the fact that the planet has to be saved. That's, that's the main point I want to make in the book, uh, the first part of the book. Environmentalists are used to the idea that if they explain the situation, then people are going to understand how dire it is. And if they do, they're going to want to do something about it. And that was the strategy that was followed for the 40 years that the environmental movement has been vocal. And it worked. It worked in, this, I mean, it worked in, 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 the, in the fact that we're talking about it and that Democrats have progressive agendas and stuff and everything. But I think we're just hitting a wall now and I wrote the book before COVID and I was struck by the fact that COVID gave such a brilliant demonstration of what I was trying to say. Nobody could foresee that COVID would be politicized in the fact that wearing a mask would even be a question but as soon as a number of people understood 
that wearing a mask will entail two things. I mean, being scared of the situation as not going out, not consuming, not going to restaurants, putting the economy at risk. And that the most vulnerable people to COVID were people of color, uh, poor people, people working in social services and stuff. Well, the mask became something, well, there was no, as I was saying, there's no cons consensus anymore that there, there should be a fight against COVID. And that's exactly the same wall that um, environmentalists are hiding into right now. They thought that if they explained how COVID or the climate crisis is dangerous, then everybody would obviously wear a mask or stop uh, using plastic. And that's not the case. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say that I think the first step is a mental step. It's an abstract step. And it's the step of ceasing to call the climate crisis a crisis. It's not a crisis. Not anymore. It, it was but it's not anymore. It's a war. It's a culture war. And you don't fight a crisis as you fight a war. Um, a crisis can be overcome by consensus, by partisan rule and, and reaching and etc. Not a war. A war has to be won uh, with weapons, <laughs> with, with, with fighting back. I'm not sure, unfortunately, the, neither the environmentalist party, or at least its major components, uh, neither the Democratic Party in America, for instance, are really totally convinced of that. If they were, uh, they probably would use the full executive powers of a president uh, in a war. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that an American president can basically, on his own, without asking the Senate, start a war with the rest of the planet, but cannot deliver more than two or three articles on climate change, which is basically a war which is waged on the world. So you talk about a green army, and <laughs> I actually thought you meant an army of ecologists, biologists, chemists, etc., <laughs> running around fixing the place up. But, <laughs> but this is really about our getting armed and establishing a power to assert a, a new agenda. Well, this was well, not a new agenda, I suppose. It's, it's actually just fighting to save what, we, what we're losing. And it struck me that we used to have a national service program where young people were drafted into a national army training program. Could this be something brought back again into a Green Army Corps? Absolutely, so, absolutely. Uh, well, the, the, the Green Army thing is, comes from the Red Army. Trotsky is a, a very pervasive figure in the book because Trotsky witnessed the, the rise of fascism in the 1930s and wrote a book about how to fight it. And he had kind of the same conversation we're having about the socialist left and the German socialist left was not taking fascism or in, in that case, social nationalism seriously. And they thought it could be fought in parliament with normal you know, rules and that nobody could have an idea of what the apocalypse that was going to come on, on to Europe in the 1930s. And I think we're not taking seriously carbo-fascism and what the climate crisis could spell on us. So I, I read this Trotsky book and, and thought, well, what lessons can we take back from this? And one of them is the late Trotsky uh, created the Red Army because as I was saying, I mean, he was fighting a war. Uh, he was taking these things seriously. You fight a war with an army. So communism was to be uh, imposed on Russia through political means and different strategies. And then it had to be defended at its frontiers by an army. And I'm as everyone from our generation and our culture, I'm not at ease with the idea of an army. I, I, I didn't do my military service. I would rather wish we didn't need an army. I'm as much as environmentalists who come from pacifist uh, views and anti-militarist views, I, I share them. But then again, we are the only one to share them. <laughs> 
half of the world does not share them. Half the world wants uh, an army to take over the world. And um, this is what's happening with climate change. I've just opened a, a little parenthesis in here, but when regions of South Africa reach zero point, which is the point when there's no water in the taps anymore, and that happens now once or twice a year, what happens? The army comes in with trucks and delivers, you know, watered cans. So that, that the army is here. The American army is already in Africa in climate change sensible areas because they, they're monitoring stuff. So the question really is, do you want the army to be green or do you want it to be brown? <laughs> I mean, if environmentalists don't want to just be doing some stuff, some hot air kind of stuff, conversations about climate change and how serious it is, well, then they, they probably have to envisage the idea that the whole apparatus of the state has to be put up and put put to work and the army is one it's a war effort we're talking about uh, even if there is no war no effective war and no bullets to be shot and i wish we, we we don't have to but it's a war effort if you want to electrify the whole world in in less than 10 years you're talking of a war effort. I love the anecdote of Churchill calling Roosevelt and saying in 1941 or something like that and saying, you know, we're going to need your industrial backup to build the planes and boats and stuff. And Roosevelt says, well, okay, but how many planes do you need? Because like we build 10 per year or something. And he says, we need 10,000. And, and this is what a war effort is. It means propping up a, an yeah. industrial apparatus in order to reach an objective, which sounds in normal conditions, is unattainable. The EU is apparently looking for a new identity, so perhaps an EU-wide green army could be, could be a, a possibility. But the other area that you talk about, which is often spurned as a cause of the crisis, and yet defines modern life, especially in developed countries, but also in developing countries, is technology. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the role of technology in terms of our wider aspirations for living and as a part of our pathway to the future? Well, technology is basically, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's part of a problem. It's part of the, of the climate problem is technology. And so lots of environmentalists think that we need to, you know, to, to, to wind down our use of technology. And, and I understand why, and I understand degrowth and Obviously, all this is very clear, but um, at the same time, again, the assumption behind that is that we're going to find a consensus about climate change and degrowth and things are going to go better. But what happens if they don't? What happens if, if Russia does not want to cut its emissions? I mean, let's say tomorrow Putin, just as, as he does already, just says, you know, no, I, I changed my mind or China. We are going to build four more coal power stations than, than you destroyed. And, and we're just going to raise the temperature. Who wants to raise the temperature? We, we, find, we, we, we think it's, it's interesting for us. It's fun. What do you do? You're just left with nothing, just hoping that people would have understood and would have done something. They don't. They don't want to. So what do you do? You have to invent ways. You have to give yourself weapons. Once again, you have to build weapons if you want to win that war. And some of these weapons are carbon capture technologies, or you have to be active in what you can propose to, to young people, to, to the world, if you want to create a mass movement. You can't just say to people, stop eating avocados. I mean, it's this is... It's not going to work, not like that. It's, it's, it's helpful, but it hasn't got the capacity to create a, a mass mobilization 
I hate Elon Musk, but you have to admit he has 58 million followers on Twitter because they want to believe in something. They want to believe that they can go to Mars. And the, the power of imagination that technology has behind it is something that the environmentalist should not belittle. And actually, this consensus, this whole thing converges on hope as a, the critical sort of element, I think, for the success here in the climate struggle. But if we are facing a climate coup, and this is really the last question, the action beyond that, which we haven't yet taken, is required. Are we not on course for a, a very messy period of struggle? Have you had any thoughts on what that looks like? And the cover of your book isn't... <laughs> well, I'm very pessimistic, to be honest. I think I think we've passed the, the, the threshold and uh, that we're, we're yeah, the, the next years, the, the next decades are not going to be a nice thing to go through. You know, the cover of my book is actually some kind of vision I had, <laughs> which which just I had to put on paper. I created the, the cover and it's the Reichstag uh, monument burning in the Amazon fires. Uh, I, it's, it's kind of, I wanted to, to make this, this crash between these two pictures that I had in my mind, the 1930s situation. This way, it was a way of saying you know, that the Amazon fires really are democracy burning, not only the world, but, but, but democracy itself, uh, the, yeah. the Reichstag monument, the parliament, um, and, and taken hostage by these fascists who have understood how to cripple democracy by uh, burning trees. So yes, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it, it maybe it, 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 it Maybe the situation can be turned around by a series of catastrophes uh, that would happen in, in modern countries. I mean, it only takes two drafts in France, uh, where I live, to, to have everybody speaking of climate change again. Uh, when, 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 the, when the climate actually lets us you know, forget about the crisis, um, the usual topics come of political conversation, uh, blur the whole field and, and, and it's business as usual. But as soon as catastrophes happen, then you see that the topic comes back and is actually on the top of preoccupations of many citizens. And, um, and you see that in Germany with the Greens winning and you see that the Greens are, I mean, are pushing and the environmentalists have an access to power. But yeah, it will need some kind of dark miracle to happen. Well, I think the, the actions you propose in your book, are, I would say, are quite extreme. But then if you take it, I don't really like using the optimist, pessimistic kind of thing. But, you know, if you have a sense of reality, then what with the action we need to take is going to be extreme. If we're going Absolutely. To, yeah, yeah. There's, there's this sci-fi book, which is amazing. The Ministry for the Future. Have you read The Ministry for the, for the Future? I've heard of it. By Kim Stanley Robinson. Well, that, yeah. that book tells you how extreme is going to become very soon. It, it, it starts with a, with a terrible heat wave in India, killing millions, millions of people. And it talks about this uh, um, United Nations Organization for Climate Geoengineering, <laughs> which has to think about what they're going to do for the next heat wave in the world. And it's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. 
and it's terrifying because it feels so close to reality. I mean, right now, as we speak, it's 50 degrees Celsius in Iraq, certain regions in Iran. We are very close to the point where people are going to really drop dead because of heat, because there's a threshold of heat and humidity, which is untenable for the, for the human body. So it's very close to this book. And, and as you're saying, that the, as the situation is going to be more extreme, the, the, the ideas to fight, to fight it are going to be more extreme. And that's why I'd rather we be prepared. And, and that includes talking about geoengineering too, and all these technologies that we're putting on the side for the moment, because we don't need them. And we think, you know, it, it would be better as, as the army. It would be better if we didn't need them. Yes. Definitely, it would be better. But we're not in 1992 in the Rio Congress. I mean, we've lost 30 years, 40 mm. years of work. And we're not in this mitigation process of, of saying, oh, maybe in 2050 we'll be net zero, which is bullshit. We are in the midst of something which is going to be, which, well, I guess we're in the midst of a, of a breakdown event. Uh, and we're, we're going to live through it. But then, yeah, I was uh, at something I didn't say, um, which can give us hope, is that in the near past, which is still our present, actually, uh, the fight against another breakdown uh, was, was met with success, which is fight against AIDS. Fight against AIDS needed the, the will, the incredible will, courage, organization of a small number of people, organized people, namely the ACT UP uh, organization, and they turned around the whole discourse around AIDS, how to fight it. They invented all these agitprop and, and stuff, which are inspired by Trotsky, and, and it broke the ice of media intention, and it forced governments and politicians and labs and, and scientifics to work on AIDS, and the progress it made in a couple of years, coming from a very dire situation where basically poor people were just dying from AIDS, like in droves, and absolutely nobody cared, tells us that sometimes in human history, a small group of determined people with the right agenda, the right words. And it's very similar to climate change. That's why I tried to explain in the book. We have lots of things to learn from how ACT UP succeeded. That's really the, the only thing I wish is that um, the young for youth for climate and, and, and Greta, Greta Thunberg and all these people who are admirable in their engagement, uh, learn from ACT UP and, and create this radical movement we need to, to succeed. Sure. And I think that's the main thing. I mean, we are at that what next moment in terms of activism. I think we're not seeing the, the change we need to see. And, no, definitely. But I think, uh, yeah, your, your book is a great, very fascinating contribution towards that, Thank sort you. of trying to envisage what next. <laughs> so thanks, Mark. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.